Hey, everybody, and welcome back to We're Just Talking. Today, we have a really awesome guest. We're so excited for this podcast. Um, this is, you know, one that we've had in the works for a couple of weeks now. And by way of quick introduction, um, Jay Hewitt is a pastor in Orange, California at the Friends Church. He is also a husband and father, and he was recently diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Um, he's got an incredible story of resiliency and endurance um, and a story of his faith and family. And we're going to let Jay speak for himself, but we just wanted to give a quick introduction. Um, we're super excited for this podcast and we can't wait to share it with you guys. We're so excited to get started. Um, Jay Hewitt. Welcome, Jay. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I know you're a busy guy and we're going to get into all the stuff that, uh, that you've been trying to tackle here. Um, but just to start, by way of background, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Are you originally from California? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Southern California and uh, have just uh, consistently been making my way closer to the coast. So grew up in the Inland Empire and then uh, went to Orange County for uh, college and just have stuck here. And any chance I get a chance to move just a few minutes closer to the coast, I, I take that opportunity. Awesome. Yeah, we can relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we live... Uh, about 15 minutes from the beach and I always tell Julian like I can't live anywhere that's not near a body of water preferably the ocean but yeah 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 my, you I, know right now there's a lot of my friends that are moving out of California because housing prices are so high and it's it's tough to get oh, started insane. it's tough to start a, a family and, and that but man I would I would have a tough time leaving um yeah yeah I totally feel that um so how did you to get started as we did in your introduction you're a pastor um you started your own church is that right yeah great so how did you can you like rewind the clock a little bit and tell us how you got involved with uh the church originally and how did you first get in tune with your own faith well i i wasn't raised in a religious household um it was actually i don't know i i guess you could consider it an anti-religious household very skeptical of religion and we just didn't talk about spiritual things. Um, and uh, also my household was very chaotic. So there was mental illness, addiction, things of that nature that just as a, a kid made for a very confusing upbringing. And um, by the time I was uh, going into high school, I was starting to get into some trouble, getting arrested hanging out with the wrong people. And uh, I was just barely smart enough to, to look down the road and see, hey, this is not leading anywhere good. Um, two of my best friends at the time, uh, they went to church. They weren't uh, particularly great influences, but <laughs> they went to church <laughs> nonetheless. And they, uh, they invited me and said, hey, Jay, uh, come to church with us. And I said, nah, no thanks. And they said, come on, man, there's a ton of cute girls. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's try this out. And you know what? They weren't Sold. lying. At, yeah, at their church, there was a lot of cute girls. So uh, started going to church a little bit, started to have some questions. And then they said, hey, uh, come to summer camp with us. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, a whole week of this? I'm not sure if I can handle that. And they said, there are even more cute girls at summer camp. And I said, sold, let's go. So <laughs> we, we went and uh, that's, that's the first time that I, I really started paying attention to uh, what the guy up front was saying. And as he started speaking of a, of a God that was like a father figure, 
that um, that really sacrificially loves his children, I was just so in need of something like that because I, I felt like there there wasn't anyone at home at that time that was really stepping in for me or protecting me. And uh, to think that there was a, a creator of the universe willing to do that for me, that really drew me in. I approached it with the same skeptical attitude that my dad had, and I asked a ton of questions, and not everything made sense, but I think I was uh, overwhelmed by the amount of, of love that was being given to me, both through the message of Jesus, but also through the way people were treating me. Uh, there was a new group of friends around me that were a good influence, and then I started picking up new mentors and started to see a new new purpose in life, a new way to live. And as a teenager, I was like, this is what I need. So I'm in. And I can, I can remember uh, kind of my conversion moment, if you want to call it there. It was my first time to pray. And I just remember telling Jesus, okay, listen, I don't know how to live my life. This is, this is about to be a train wreck. And so I'm going to trust you. Uh, it, it seems like you're trustworthy to me. And so I'm going to trust you and I'm going to give my life to you. However you want me to live it, uh, I'll, follow, I'll follow in your footsteps. And so that was, that was the moment. And everything changed. Uh, my parents noticed almost instantly. You know, my mom's like, you're like 180 degrees different. And uh, my dad was like, you've been brainwashed. <laughs> but uh, it really did bring me an inner peace. And then that manifested itself in bringing more peace into the household. Because even though those things were cha uh, chaotic around me, I was more calm. And I wasn't reacting in the same way that I was reacting before. And so it calmed down the household a little bit. And my parents took note of that and saw that it was a, a good thing. And so... You know, I was uh, on my own when it came to faith. I would read my Bible every night. 90% of the time I had no idea what I was reading as a, you know, young teenager. Um, but then uh, the more and more I read and then I would go to church on my own every Sunday. I'd ride my bike to church to get there um, and had a great youth pastor that, that mentored me and helped explain stuff because I had, I had a lot of catching up to do. All these other kids were raised in the church, and, and I didn't know even the basics. Um, but so he really helped me. Uh, and then I dated a girl, and her family kind of became my second, my second family, almost like a spiritual family of uh, real health and was able to, to guide me along the way. And so by the time I was done in my high school career, you know, you start asking yourself, what do I want to do uh, for a living? And I had a, a couple different directions that I was, I was going, photography, videography, stuff like that, more on the artistic end of the spectrum. But when I really looked at my giftings and what I was just good at, it really came down to I was good with connecting with people, I was good at storytelling, and my life was so radically changed in my high school years that I thought, if I can help other people find this hope, that would bring me fulfillment, and that would be a job worth doing. And so I uh, ended up going to college uh, to get a degree in theology. And I was really dedicated to be a pastor to teenagers. And I did that for a decade because I just knew that was such a huge point in a person's life when they're really forming their identity. And I wanted to help them uh, find hope in that time because it had such a huge impact on me. So I did that for a decade. 
and then uh uh you know i got old and crusty and uh <laughs> so basically the high school kids booted me out and so i had to go plant a church so we started a, a church down in uh this really cool area of old town orange and it's uh we're located in this old packing house that in in california it's kind of rare to have brick and something you know a hundred years old and so we're in this historic building and it just it's light and airy and um people come in and they they comment on the architecture and they, they i don't know how they make this uh, conclusion but they they say this place feels not judgmental and the architecture speaks that way but we've tried to create a community that's that's the same you know and, and i think i have uh, a specific advantage because i wasn't raised in a religious household and i you know i found the faith on my own um we just naturally create a community that's not a bubble, a clique, just assuming everybody's insiders, but uh, really open for people that are just trying to figure it out. And uh, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, you're welcome. And so we've had a lot of people that don't have the normal religious experience come in and, and find hope and are a part of our community now. So it's a, a really fulfilling thing. Love that. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely amazing. Um, and Jay, I know you, I believe you stated before that you actually almost found religion kind of in like a rebellious fashion. Is that correct? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's this, um, this kind of sense where like when you're a teenager, you rebel and I, and I was starting to re rebel pretty hardcore against my parents and getting into trouble. Um, but then it was almost like I, I had a counter rebellion where, I, where I just looked at everything that my parents stood for and they weren't, they weren't uh, religious uh, a lot of the, the, the moral standards that uh, a follower of Jesus would hold, they didn't hold themselves. And so, you know, I kind of rebelled against my parents in that way by walking the straight and narrow. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it kind of drove them nuts a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you. Yeah, no, that, that's, um, that's amazing. Uh, and it's funny, too, because I, you know, I kind of did the same thing when I was a teenager growing up. Um, I mean, at 17 years old, I ended up joining the military um, just because I knew like in almost in a rebellious fashion that um, I needed to kind of break away and um, and continue to, you know, help try to make a better, almost like a better foundation for myself to to grow into. Um, but I almost did it in a way that, you know, hey, I'm going to be better. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this. And whether it again, it's, you know, joining the military, for example, or, you know, finding, um, you know, finding religion. Um, it's it's pretty funny how kind of you and I were able to, to connect on that level, um, basically in order to better ourselves. You know, at a young age, like we recognized that we need to do something quickly, and then we both kind of took that that initiative and get to get it done. Alternative path, yeah. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, yeah, and when it comes to you know growing up as a you know individualistic American, uh, self sacrifice isn't uh, at the top of our our minds, and so I think both in whether it's religion or military there really is a rebellious spirit of saying like, I'm going to do this a little differently. I'm going to serve others um, instead of putting myself first. And so that's really cool, Julian, that, that you took that route. Thank you for your service, man. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I know we, uh, we previously spoke about this um, about, and we just talked about making the church inclusive of everybody, no matter their journey or where they came from. Um, what initiatives has your church taken if any, um, in kind of being more inclusive of like a progressive mindset, um, kind of opening the door for people who haven't been 
you know, I know we were raised Catholic, so like there's sacraments and like you kind of have to play by their rules in order to do certain things. Um, how does your ter- church differ in that way? You know, a lot of it comes just from the messaging from stage. And and we'll say little little taglines like you don't have to believe to belong. Um, and that that kind of puts down people's guards right from the from the get go. Uh, we talk a lot about the fact that we're not all going to agree on everything here, whether it be politically or theologically, and that there's room and that we need diversity uh, in culture, but also in belief. And so we we have people that, you know, uh, that they don't agree with me on every issue. And, you know, I'm the pastor, but we like that. And we we leave room for that. When I teach on a uh, a topic that, uh, you know, different denominations or different churches might have different views on, uh, I bring those to the forefront. So I let people know, hey, this isn't the only way to look at this. Personally, after my study of this, my experience, this is how I view it. However, there are really smart, loving people that view it differently. And we'll, we'll show those other views uh, and then bring in other people to teach. So I'm not always the one teaching up front. And so our community gets to hear from different people. And, uh, and I think that just th- that messaging, very intentional, uh, puts people in the mindset of, okay, I can, I can come here to figure some things out. I don't, I don't have to have all of my ducks in a row. I don't need to be perfect to, to be here. That's another one of our taglines. There's no perfect people here. Um, and so it, it creates a, a kind of relaxed environment. Um, also, my personality is a little more relaxed, and the, the way that, that everybody dresses is, is relaxed. And, and, so, uh, and we have a good mixture of people, which makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that vibe. It's very easy to talk to you, which I'm thankful for because we're obviously very new at this. But Absolutely. And um, I also love the, um, just how like, everything is completely progressive, um, as you were stating as well. Um, I think that's very interesting because, like you said, you're going to get people who maybe didn't have your normal, you know, um, growing up, you know, within faith. And then you find a certain like almost target market and these people are attracted to you and obviously to what you have to say and to the overall environment and idea of what the church is. And um, I think it's just inspiring. So switching gears a little bit, um, I know that you've been facing uh, some personal challenges um, and I would imagine that would cause you to lean into your faith a little bit more. Um, Can you talk about um, kind of your health status and what's been going on? Three years ago, um, out of nowhere, I had a seizure, and we had no idea what, what was going on. So I went to the doctor. He sent me in for an MRI, and when we got the MRI back, I remember it was a Sunday. Um, I'd just gotten through with church, got home, and I got a call from a neurosurgeon, and, uh, and he told me he was looking at my MRI, and he didn't want to wait, and he told me that I had a brain tumor about the size of a ping pong ball towards the center of my brain. And it was going to require surgery. And that just knocked the wind out of me, as you can imagine. Um, I asked him a, a few questions, but didn't even know what to ask at that, at that point. But all I knew is I had a brain tumor, and I knew that wasn't good. And so I got off the phone with him. I walked upstairs uh, to our bedroom. My wife had just bought a new dress. She was trying it on. She asked me to, to zip up the back for her. And so I, I did. I zipped up the back and I just said, honey, 
I just got off the phone with a surgeon and he tells me that I have a, a brain tumor and I'm going to need to have surgery. And she just turned around. We hugged, we fell down onto the bed and we just cried. And, uh, that was the, that was the beginning of a, of a very long journey of, uh, dealing with initially a, a brain tumor, which then developed into brain cancer. And, um, had a lot of treatment leading up to this place and a lot of soul searching of, you know, what's, what's really important in life. What do I want to do right now? I've got a young daughter who's five, you know, what, what I, what do I want to do for my daughter? Because my particular disease is terminal. There's no cure for it. Um, and so I have a, a prognosis that is telling me that my life will be cut sig significantly short. And so all the big questions that uh, faith really does address and that I had already wrestled with to a certain extent, uh, I had to start wrestling with those again. Wow. That's, I mean, that's incredible. I, um, so the first diagnosis was brain tumor. Um, Non-cancerous the first time? Well, they weren't sure. They okay. took a look at it and they said, uh, it looks like it has clear borders. So it looks like it's just a, a tumor. It could possibly be benign. And they said, Here, here's the deal. With these type of tumors, uh, they're either cancerous or they're precancerous. If we've caught yours in the precancerous stage where it's got you know, these solid borders, if we're able to get in through surgery and remove the entire tumor, then uh, you'll be in essence cured you'll have a regular lifespan given back to you but if we're not able to get the entire tumor whatever is left will uh will then progress into cancer and so the stakes became very high then for that um for that surgery to be successful and for them to be able to remove the entirety of the tumor which in my case was not a, a simple situation wow so you they basically say you got you need to have surgery we have to get it out so take us through the treatment did you um have to seek additional you know oncology help or was it this brain surgeon that performed the surgery well uh the brain surgeon that called me i met with him the next week and he showed me where the tumor was and he said uh it is partially inoperable. And he said, and I'm not the one that is qualified to attempt this surgery. So then he sent me to another brain surgeon who said the same thing and sent me to another brain surgeon and another and, and just down the line. And it was basically looking like they might be able to remove 50% of it, but the 50% that was right at the center of my brain, it was uh, going to be too risky to get to that uh, because there was a, a large blood vessel that was blocking the way that if that got nicked, it would basically give me a stroke during surgery. Um, and then because the tumor was in the center of my brain, it was in, in a portion that really deals with um, all of your, your motor skills. And so if something went wrong in there, I'd be completely paralyzed. Um, but it also has to do with um, interpersonal relationships, your ability to read social cues and be kind of normal if if i could 
put it that way. Um, kind of, it fair. makes you the, the person that you are. Uh, and uh, if something goes wrong there, you can come out a very angry person. Uh, you could come out with no filter, which that could also be hilarious. <laughs> 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 you know, I think there might be movies written about something like that. But oh, uh, yeah. so um, anyway, it was uh, nobody wanted to attempt that because it was just too dangerous. But eventually, one surgeon said, hey, I'm not the right guy for this surgery. However, there are about five guys in the world that are qualified to attempt this. And yeah, yeah. And, and he said, and, and I, I happened to be friends with one. And he pulled out his cell phone and called right there and said, uh, Mitch, I need you to, to meet somebody. He, he's in, in need of, of your services. And uh, Dr. Berger on the other line said, yeah, if he can fly up tomorrow, let's meet. And so I flew up to San Francisco, to UC San Francisco, met with Dr. Mitchell Berger, and he said, uh, I can do this. I can do this. It will be high risk, uh, you know, uh, but I can do it. And then he also said, but to do it, I'm going to need to keep you awake for this surgery. And my face went white at that wow. moment. You know, um, I, I have seen a particular horror movie that just came back to mind of, uh, of a guy uh, awake while, you know, this villain is messing with his brain. And so I, you know, I felt like this, this is a horror movie I'm about to enter into. Right. Um, but he, he saw how, how scared I was. And he said, think it over. He said, we can do it with you uh, asleep, like a normal brain surgery, but I won't be able to test you in the process. And so the, the likelihood of a, a successful surgery goes down. He said, but it's up to you, so think about it. So I went home, did some research in medical journals, and uh, all the experts were saying, for this condition, with this placement, you need surgery in a specialty center, and you need an awake craniotomy. And so... I had no choice but to say, okay. And right. I was worried that I was going to, because what they do is they, they put you to sleep so that they could uh, cut into the scalp and remove uh, a portion of the, the skull, kind of like a jack-o'-lantern, that top portion so that they can get into the brain. But once they remove those pieces, uh, then you are, uh, there's no pain nerves in the brain. And so you can't feel anything. Um, and so what they do is they put you asleep for the first part. And then once they're in there, they wake you up. And I was worried that once I would come to that, I'd just flip out and I'd freak out. And, uh, he said, you know, I've never had anybody freak out on my table before and I'll be there with you and I'll walk you through it and you're going to be okay. Um, and then I was also afraid of, uh, having a stroke in the middle of that or having a seizure. You could also have a, a major seizure in the midst of that. And so I was just afraid of being awake and experiencing that, but I had no other choice. And so I had to, I had to face it. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. That's, I mean, that alone is an experience that something, it's something that people don't, that people will go their whole life without ever having to experience that. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Like just being a part of that medical, like 
technology. Like, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, walking into that, like, I mean, yeah. Again, you're kind of almost psyching yourself out going into that, and but like you said, you kind of had no other choice. So it's like, all right, here we go. I'm gonna face the fire. I'm walking, you know, straight ahead into it. Right. And uh, hopefully, come out, you know, on the other side, you know, winning. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what? I mean, do you remember the surgery? Do you remember what happened? Yeah, crystal clear. It oh wow! Is okay, so crazy, and uh, and you know, I, I wouldn't wish a brain tumor on on anyone. Uh, however, the thing that I was so afraid of turned out to be just an incredible experience to be able to experience being awake during brain surgery. You know, I, I kind of feel like it's it's similar to like going to the moon, where not many yeah. people have that opportunity. But if somebody you know gave that opportunity to me, I would take it. Sure. And now looking back on, on the awake surgery, I actually have had two now. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a trip. I remember, I, you know, they put me, they put me under, well, first let me, let me move back just, just a second to say, uh, you know, Julian, you, you mentioned, you know, you kind of psych yourself out and I did it first, but then my faith really came into play where I just, I started praying a lot, started, um, you know, just really, um, looking inward and, and looking at the trust that I had uh, in Jesus to be with me through all of this. And although I didn't know what the, the outcome was going to be, right? I'm not one of these guys that thinks like, oh, because I'm a pastor, I can't get brain cancer. Yes, you can. Sure. Oh, because I'm a pastor, everything's going to turn out perfectly. It's, I'm, I'm just a guy like anybody else. And life is hard and bad things happen. Uh, but there was this peace knowing that, hey, if if God is with me in this, then whatever I face on the other side, um, he's going to give me the strength and the courage to deal with it. And so I, I'm praying for the best outcome. I'm trusting for a good outcome. But no matter what's going to happen, I'm going to be okay. And so the night before surgery, uh, I slept like a baby. I, mm. you know, it was 10 p.m. And uh, I'm like, okay, I've got an early morning tomorrow. I'm going to go to sleep. Went to bed, slept all the way through, got up didn't feel anxious, didn't feel nerves, said, okay, let's, let's do this. We walked over to the hospital and, uh, I was in a, in a normal mood. Um, I, you know, joked around with the surgeon a little bit and, uh, and my friends that were there to support me. And we went back and the, uh, the surgeon was wheeling me back. He said, how do you feel? And I said, I feel, I feel good. How do you feel? And he said, I feel good too. <laughs> I said, good. I said, don't worry. We got, we got thousands of people praying for us. We're going to be fine. And he yeah. laughed at that. And uh, then he's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to put you under as we go back. And, and to sleep I went. And then I woke up. And the first thing I remember was this searing pain. And I remember my thought was, you told me this wasn't going to hurt. You told me there was oh no pain receptors in my brain. Oh. Uh, but what happened is um, they didn't put enough lidocaine on my scalp. <gasps> and so I was feeling that. And so this, oh I, I just, I wake up and I'm screaming. ah, And I oh, hear no. as calm and collected as possible. The, the neurosurgeon goes, lidocaine. And I just feel <laughs> this wash go over my scalp. And then no more pain for the rest of the time. And, um, but what that did is that, that woke me up because he told me that I'd be kind of in a twilight stage, which was right. the case with my second surgery. But because of the adrenaline spike that brought me out of that twilight and everything was crystal clear, which was awesome because I have a hundred percent memory. Cause that's the other thing he said, you probably won't even remember the surgery, but wow. I remember 
everything. And with the surgical lights, everything was super crystal clear. I could see all the attending physicians in there. The, uh, the guy that was monitoring my, my chemicals, he kept coming down, checking my pupils. Um, I could see a crew around this big computer that was in real time mapping my brain. And they were, uh, you know, manipulating all the data and giving that to the surgeon. And, uh, and then I could hear the surgeon above me. And uh, he's, got, he's just got a great voice. He'd be a great podcast host. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <calming>. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and he would just ask me, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing? And then he, he said, okay, we're going to start doing some tests. Because with uh, the tumor that I had, it wasn't a like something separate that needed to be removed. It was actual brain tissue that had been infected. And wow. so he was going to be cutting away brain. And so before cutting away a piece, he would test it to know exactly what the results were going to be if that piece was no longer there. And so he had mapped everything out and he took this electrode and he said, all right, Jay, I'm going to press now on your brain and tell me where you feel it. And uh, he pressed and I said, oh, I feel that in my leg. And he pressed and I said, I feel that in my left arm. And then he said, tell me if you can feel this in your mouth. And he pressed, and I go, oh, yeah, I can feel that. It felt like my tongue has had swelled up in my mouth. Obviously, that didn't happen, right. but just, you know, just pressing on a certain part of the brain. And after he confirmed that all the mapping was, was right, he started, started moving and started cutting and slicing, and, uh, and I could hear all of the tools with crystal clarity, um, which could be gruesome. And, and retelling it, it's always kind of... Like people can get nauseated when I talk about that. So I won't go too far into the drilling and spinning and slicing that I heard. That's insane. But it, it, was, it was really interesting to me at the time. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And I, although I couldn't feel pain, I could feel pressure. I knew where they were working. And I knew when he was transitioning into the interior part of the brain because he started asking me more questions. You know, he started asking me about other people's hair color and wow. facial expressions and stuff like that. And so I knew like, okay, he's about to go into that interior portion of my brain. And uh, I've never felt more out of control in my life because I'm laying on a table. My life is in someone else's hands. And if he performs well, then my life will be spared. And if he doesn't, uh, I could die or I could come out uh, with severe brain damage and my physical uh, abilities could be diminished. My quality of life could be way down. And so I was completely out of control. And yet, uh, again, that still peace was with me. And I was okay with it. And I, I just had this certain sense of trust as I felt him transitioning into the interior part of my brain that it would be okay. And after four hours of him communicating with me, testing me, he said, all right, Jay, We've got all we need from you. You can go back to sleep now. And they put me back to sleep. And uh, what felt like just seconds later, I woke back up. And the first thing that I see in this all-white room is my wife. And she's looking at me. And when she sees that I'm awake, the first thing that she said to me is, Jay, they got it all. They got the entire tumor. And it was like my, my life was just handed back to me in that moment. I had gone through in, in the you know, several weeks prior to this, this roller coaster of 
this is bad. Oh, this is really bad. Oh, we can't do anything about this. Oh, maybe there might be a chance that we can do something about this. And now to have something so uh, what felt like miraculous happen, uh, I just felt immense joy. And it was incredible. And within a half hour after that, I was up walking around filming a quick YouTube thank you for the thousands of people that were praying for me and saying, hey, God is good. We're all good. Thank you for your prayers. I'll be back with you soon. So it was incredible. That's so. okay. so you beat the odds. I mean, they had said that they were going to try and get as much as they can, you know, without the promise or even suggestion that they would get it all. And they got it all. So you totally beat the odds. How did that feel like when you when you were the you were essentially the one percent, two percent fraction of a percent? How did that feel? Uh, it, it was incredible. And um, it, w- it was interesting because something on a completely different level happened than I was expecting. So that was the, the medical breakthrough. But there was also an emotional breakthrough that happened as well. Um, being raised in the household that I was raised in. Uh, one of the key events in my life was the first three years of, of my life, I was um, neglected, clinically neglected. My, my mom dealing with mental illness, also on top of that, postpartum depression. She just wasn't able to care for me. And so I was left on my own. And that had resulted in some pretty significant attachment issues. My ability to connect with, with loved ones on a deep level Uh, was really hampered. And so I had these great uh, surface relationships. I could connect with a lot of people quickly, draw them in. um, And I had a lot of friends and, uh, and that worked well. I was able to even keep relationships, romantic relationships for years. And that would work. But after getting married and being married for 10 years, there is a certain level of depth that I just wasn't able to go. And uh, it was driving my wife crazy. You know, we'd been to, to marriage counseling quite a few times, just trying to, to chisel away at the wall that I had built up around my heart. And, and I can't quite explain it, but for whatever reason, coming out of that surgery, um, it was like a new birth. And it was almost like uh, because my wife was the one that was there to tell me that they got it all, it, it rebuilt a trust that I can trust this woman. Wow. Although I, I couldn't trust my mom, who should have been there for me, I can trust her. She's different. My, this is a completely different experience than what I had as a kid. And walls around my heart just started to crumble. And I was able to connect on a level that I hadn't been able to connect before. And so that's true with my wife and my daughter. And it's still a process. I, I still am learning uh, how to continue to lower my defenses and let, uh, let loved ones in. But a, a significant change happened in that, more, that moment. So I got much more than just my, my physical life back. Uh, I got much more emotional capacity as well. Wow. Okay. That's so, incredible. yeah, I mean, that's more than you could bar, like more than you bargained for from the very beginning. I mean, in, multiple ways i mean obviously the focus is your health and trying to get you back to being healthy but you reaped so many more benefits which is just i mean it's insane you beat the odds at all capacity like all the way across the board so that's great <laughs> i know it's insane in all ways but one so um <laughs> <laughs> oh geez and this this is why it gets so confusing because everything was going so well 
Um, I was beating the odds on all, all sorts of levels. And um, with this type of tumor, uh, it put me into a 50% category. They got all of it. So now they're watching to see, will it come back? Because there might have been, even though it seemed like there was clear borders, there might have been microscopic uh, cancer cells that just couldn't be seen either by MRI machines or by the human eye when the surgeon was in there. Um, and so it's 50-50. And uh, they said, you know, um, in about five years from now, if it comes back, then we know that uh, we caught this a little too late and you, you've got brain cancer. But I was kind of like, well, things are going so well. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'll be fine. But it didn't, it didn't even take five years. Within a year, I had another seizure. And I had an MRI scheduled uh, the week after that anyway. And I went in for my MRI, and sure enough, a uh, tumor had recurred, which uh, lets the medical community know, my, my doctors know that, okay, this is brain cancer. Um, there are cancer cells all throughout my brain that uh, can't be seen by MRIs, um, but eventually those cells get turned on and start to form a new tumor. And so that, that's what happened, and this new tumor came. I had to go back through uh, with the same doctor because it was in the same place, same risks. Um, but uh, uh, went through a second surgery with him. Again, completely successful. He removed, now it's called all visible tumor. Okay. Because they know that there are more cells in there. But he was able to remove a lot of it, which is a huge success because it, it gives me a better prognosis overall. But after that, uh, I had to continue on to get radiation. So I had 30 treatments of uh, proton ray rays shot at my brain. And at the same time, going through chemo, uh, I'm six cycles through chemotherapy. Um, and so I'm, I'm working through chemo and all the side effects that, that come with that. Um, my particular chemotherapy doesn't uh, make me lose my hair. So some people, you know they don't even realize that I'm dealing with cancer and I'm right in the middle of cancer treatment, but I am. And, uh, yeah, so now I, I have to deal with those thoughts of, okay, if this is the prognosis, how do I live my life? What do I do? How do I approach this? How do I be a good husband, a good dad? How do I live each day to the fullest while dealing with all of this, um, all these side effects? And, uh, that's been, a, a difficult and yet, uh, a really fulfilling road. Right. Go down. Right. So what is the prognosis? Uh, so currently the prognosis is seven to nine years. Okay. And that's from your yeah. cancer diagnosis initially? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that would place, and I, I kind of um, do the math all the time in my head of how old my daughter will be. Right. Because that's what really matters to me. Um, I've, I've always been a live life to the fullest guy and I don't have this huge bucket list because I've, I've done a lot of the things I've already wanted to do. You know, like my wife and I went skydiving on our honeymoon. Check, did that. We, in college, I went running with the bulls with a bunch of my friends. Um, <laughs> we, we've always like lived this life of adventure. And anytime there was something where I was like, oh, that would be cool, we do it. Right. And so um, I don't have a huge bucket list, but what I do have is relationships that matter to me. You know, and so I think, okay, how do I want to love my wife during this time? And how do I want to set my daughter up 
suffer if I'm not here in the long run. And now this is interesting as being a man of faith, knowing that uh, God is in control of life. And if, if it's his will, he can sustain my life for however long he wants to. And yet, um, I also have to be courageous enough to know that I'm not going to live forever no matter what. And there is going to become, there's going to be an end to my life, and this, this could be it. And the statistics say that uh, the prognosis will be correct. And so I've got to be able to live life in such a way where I'm courageous enough to look at, um, at the worst case scenario. Right. And know that that's, that's a reality that could be. And yet not lose hope that there might be more. And so I have to make decisions kind of based on both of those things. I don't want to sabotage one side or the other. Um, and so particularly when I think about my daughter, um, you know, I, I knew when she was born that uh, a, lot of, a lot of the ways that I could serve her would be through how I love my wife. So if, if she sees me loving her mom well, that's going to set her up for the type of relationship she has, the self-confidence that she has in herself. Um, and so I knew that was like the first and foremost thing. And so I need to just be consistent on that. So I'm, I'm continuing there. But the other thing that as I prayed through, what do I want to leave my daughter with is I want to leave her with the um, ability to be resilient. Um, because whether it's the pain of, of losing a father or, if I stick around, you know, for a full lifespan, life is hard and there's going to be things that knock her down and, and make, make life difficult for her. And so uh, I wanted to figure out a way to teach her resilience. And that's where the idea came in of uh, doing an Ironman triathlon um, during this time wow. because I wanted to show her that even though life has knocked me down, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to train, I'm going to hold on to hope. I'm going to press on and I'm going to do something that's, that's nearly impossible and that I really don't even know. It's almost an experiment. Can my body while going through uh, this treatment, can my body actually handle racing 140 miles in under 17 hours? Is that even possible? Um, but I'm going to at least allow her to see me get up and press on so that she gets that, um, that message. And then I, I really, I hope, and I have visions of crossing the finish line, you know, taking her in my arms and just saying, you know, honey, you, you can do hard things. If I can do it, you can do it. It doesn't have to be this, but whatever your dreams are, your mom and I are behind you a hundred percent. We support you in it. Life's going to knock you down, but you can find hope. You can get up and you can press on and you can achieve the dreams that are in front of you. And so that's a, uh, that's my hope, and that's why I'm doing an Ironman. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That, I mean, <laughs> just to weigh in quickly, Julian and I are both very active, but I, for one, can say with pretty, uh, pretty confidently that I, my body couldn't take a 140-mile race, so I commend you <laughs> on, all, <laughs> on all counts. So, I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, most people can't, can't or won't do. I mean, it's another one of those things where you're just the – you know, 1%, 2% of people that are going to complete a race like that. I mean, that's just insane.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. And we're back. Um, do you have a race date right now? Yeah, well, you know, we live in uh, the age of the pandemic. And so my original race date was in Australia in May, but that got canceled. And so now my registration has transferred to California, Santa Rosa, and that was going to be July 25th. So that's, you know, just a couple days from when we're recording this. Um, but that got postponed. And so now it's October 17th. And we'll see, you know, there's a a lot that changes from month to month when it comes to this pandemic. It might get postponed again, uh, but I'm really hoping and praying that it won't because training fatigue starts to set in. Right. And um, my my triathlon coach, she's got this great motto of uh, the hardest part of uh, Ironman is getting to the starting line healthy. Right. And so um, there's just a lot of risk for injury the longer that you're training. And I've already suffered uh, one back strain that uh, happened because of the chemotherapy that I'm I'm on. And it took me three months to recover from. Something that should have taken me three weeks took me three months. Right. And lost a lot of fitness and had to rebuild that back up. And so I'm really hoping that this race happens October 17th so that we can... uh, we can get it done yeah, <laughs> and, and move forward. That's crazy. No, absolutely. And then Jay, you said also that you were training six days a week. Is that correct? Yeah. Six days a week, anywhere from uh, two to eight hours a day. Wow. No, that's, so it's, it's pretty intense. Absolutely. Um, no, that's incredible. Yeah. We're, what, we're, so we're what to knock out, you know, our, our 30 minute Peloton right. ride yeah. you know, during like, the pandemic. And, yeah. I pat <laughs> myself on the back for doing like a 30 minute I'm like wow that was tough I really endured that but <laughs> you're talking like eight hours that's crazy what um so what's your favorite part about training and then what would you say is your least favorite part about training well first off it I you need to note that I'm I'm not an athlete I'm not a triathlete this isn't something that I've been doing my my whole life um uh but when I was 10 years old I saw Iron Man on TV and I thought these these guys are are superhuman. How can how can anybody do this? But the thought never occurred to me when I was 10 years old, I could do this because I was just raised in a household where that type of environment wasn't fostered. And so uh, that's why it came back up to me, you know, when, when I was diagnosed of, hey, I want my daughter to be raised in a different environment where when she sees Iron Man, she sees her dad doing it. And she's encouraged to ask herself, do I want to do this? Can I do this? And to have the support to go after whatever her dreams may be. And so um, I started training really from, from nothing. I've, I've always um, started my day in the gym because, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, mental illness uh, runs in my family. And I'm not immune to that. I've dealt with depression at different times. I've had to be on medication for that. But I found that through exercise, I was able to wean off of medication and handle depression and anxiety and stress through um, 
through exercise. And so uh, my adult life, I've always gotten into the gym 6 a.m. before going into work. And, um, you know, I'd run a couple times a week, but never more than three to six miles at a time is more weightlifting. Um, so I, I had a very small base. But when I, when I started radiation, that was my first day of training. So I had been, um, you know, recovering from surgery for, for two months. I had no fitness because I was having seizures before that. And so, um, you know, I, I basically hadn't exercised for six months. So I started on the first day of radiation. Um, I was in Houston in August, and it was so hot and cool. so humid out. And so I got a membership to a gym there. And I just went in and I, I ran one mile on the treadmill on my first day of radiation. Um, 40 days later, I was running 20 miles on the treadmill. And, um, and okay, so now my, my running endurance is starting to be built up. And then when I left Houston and came back to California, uh, radiation was completed, but now I'm starting chemo. I had to learn how to swim. I didn't know how to, I mean, I grew up in California, so I can swim. Right. But I couldn't swim, swim. I wasn't a competitive swimmer. And so uh, I had a friend from the church who was a, a big swimmer back in high school and college, and he started coaching me and teaching me how to swim. And so, you know, the first 100 meters that I was in the pool, I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do uh, 4,000 meters. That's just, you know, 2.4 miles is just, it seems so daunting, mm -hmm. especially when you start. But 40 days later, uh, I was swimming two and a half miles and feeling pretty good after that. And so then from there, uh, I thought, well, I need to figure out how to ride a bike <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and get a bike. So it's, it's not quite like uh, you can ride a BMX bike for 112 miles. Right. Um, so luckily, one of my hometown shops from where I grew up in Yucaipa, California, they, they said, yeah, let, you know, we're going to sponsor you. And they started hooking me up with bikes and all the equipment and everything I needed to know. And I started riding and, uh, cycling has proven to be the most difficult for me. It's the most, it's really fun in a lot of, in a lot of areas, but it's also really difficult because, um, I'm not very flexible. Uh, I've always been a tall lanky guy. Yeah. So, you know, Julian, it's, it's tough. <laughs> it's a struggle. I remember, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember being back in like, uh, elementary school doing the presidential fitness, yeah. uh, yep test and you know i could i could do the pull-ups i could run the mile i could do all those things but when it came to sit and reach that was the part that always got me um <laughs> i understand so now i'm on this uh i'm on this triathlon bike with arrow bars bent over crouched for you know six hours of just repetitive the same motion over and over and um that's where i have my issues so my uh aerobics are good. My muscle strength is good, but it's just, I have to keep working on that flexibility to be able to, to make it through because the problem is in Ironman, you, you swim two and a half miles and then you ride 112 and then you still have to do a full marathon. And a lot of people don't finish because they have muscle spasms and cramps during the marathon because of what you've already put your body through. And so if I'm not able to get off the bike with uh, mobility, then as I transition into that run, I can have some problems, which I've already had in my training. Um, and so that's the, that's the most difficult part for me. 
the part that I turned out to enjoy the most is actually swimming, which that had the, the steepest learning curve. A mm-hmm. um, lot of technique goes into that. But once I was able to uh, get the, the foundational components down, it's very meditative. And so I'll, I'm able to meditate for an hour and 15 minutes as I swim this two and a half miles. And uh, it's good for my soul. And it's, it's good for my mental health and uh, mental headspace. And so I really enjoy the swimming aspect. I think I'm also, I'm, I'm kind of built for swimming. I'm, I'm long and lean. And so I just, I glide through the water pretty well. And so that's actually something that uh, I look forward to continuing uh, living down at the coast, um, getting a chance to open water swim. I, I hope that I, I continue to, on a weekly basis, get out in the ocean and just swim a couple miles because um, it really, being in nature like that is, is awesome. Same with, with cycling and running. It's really being out in creation that I love the most. But uh, running gets boring, <laughs> and, it's, and it's pretty harsh. You know, I just did, so yesterday I did 70 miles on the bike, and the day before I did 16 miles running. Wow. And, um, yeah, running is just a little more treacherous. Yeah. And um, it hits your joints a lot harder. And uh, mentally, I think you've got to be a little stronger to, to press through. Um, and it leaves you more sore than the other ones. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I, w- I would say running has, is probably the most boring. Yeah. I, Cycling I is the most difficult. Yeah. And swimming is just pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really glad to be introduced to that sport. Yeah. Swimming is, I love swimming. I was a competitive swimmer in high school and I... Actually, was just saying to somebody in our gym, I was like, uh, she had mentioned that she belongs to a pool and she just goes. And I'm like, do you have any interest in open water swimming? Because I'm the only person that likes to do that out of anybody that I know. So I'm like, anybody who's willing to go with me and do the open water swimming, like I'm down. Like we just, it, it, because you're right. It's like you're in the ocean. You're kind of just with yourself. There's no noise other than what's happening under the water. And it's just, I'm a big fan of swimming too. So I feel that. I was just going to say, it's what's happening under the water that freaks most people out, right? Right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I won't go by myself. If you think too yeah. much into it, it's like, hmm, what else is here joining me on this swim? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually know. had, um, there was a news story not that long ago in Sandy Hook in New Jersey. A woman was out for a couple mile open water swim and she's swimming. And she, she went to stroke and she looked towards the shore and she saw people waving like frantically at her. Ooh. And she was, you know, she's like, oh, they're cheering me on. How nice. And like, she just kept going. Yeah, no. And it turns out they were, and then they, it turns out they were waving at her because there was a whale oh. right next to her. And she went to breathe on this side and saw like an eyeball that was the size of like a beach ball. Whoa. So she was like, you know, I, so that's the reason why I won't go by myself. <laughs> yeah, no. Not that anybody's going to save me from being like eaten by a whale, but you know, it's nice to just have the support. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um. So as we wrap up, what, um, I just have one more question about your training. Do you do any other, um, like supplemental, you know, whether it be yoga, stretching, weightlifting, do you do anything else that kind of adds to your training and kind of takes it to the next level? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially ever since the back strain yoga has played a, a much larger part in, in my life. So my warm up, uh, which looks very similar to yoga, uh, takes me about 30 to 40 minutes before I go out. Um, so I have to wake up really early in order to warm up uh, adequately because of my issues. 
and then um, I do some st- static stretching right after the warm ups. But then I do uh, a quick fifteen minute yoga routine before I go to bed. Plus, once a week on Sundays, I do uh, an extended yoga routine, about an hour or so um, there. And then uh, once a week, I also do uh, uh, strength training. And so I'll swim, and then after my swim, and I'll, I'll well, I would go to the gym, but I go to my backyard right now <laughs> and right. just do some yeah. free weights to make sure that I'm filling in the gaps and making sure that all those stabilizing muscles are strong right yeah we awesome we loved yoga for a while but like like you said all the yoga studios are closed and i i can't get motivated in my house to do it i don't know why but we gotta get back into it yeah especially uh, like especially you hot yeah (laughs) hot yoga um i thought it was i thought it was hot yoga is amazing yeah because it kind of softens up all the muscles and gets you ready to go yeah absolutely big fan of hot yoga um Okay, so we're running out of time, but obviously we could go on for hours um, with you. Uh, you know, there's so many more questions we have about, you know, nutrition and other stuff like that. But I, I just wanted to kind of get your story out there. Um, you had mentioned that you were uh, picked up for a documentary. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is there's a studio that's based in London that heard about my story. And uh, they began a, a conversation with me about being featured in a, in a documentary. And it was a no-brainer for me because uh, the biggest obstacle for what I'm trying to teach my daughter is she's only five years old right now. And so is she going to be able to really comprehend what I'm trying to say to her? I think to a certain level, just witnessing this will ingrain in her a certain amount of resiliency. But if, if I can make a film that she's able to watch later in life and reflect back on, um, then that's... Yeah, that's a, a win no matter what. But uh, this studio has brought on a significant amount of funding and a, a really, really great crew. And so uh, hopefully uh, a lot of people get a chance to hear my story. And, man, it would be a, a dream come true if not only my daughter was inspired, but I was able to inspire others. That would just make life feel so worth worthwhile. And so... Um, yeah, we're we're filming. They they follow me around on a lot of my training, a lot of my doctor's appointments. Uh, they interview various people from the brain surgeon to uh, people who think I'm crazy for attempting this um, and think I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and yeah, they'll be with me at the actual race and and following me through the race and and all that. And uh, so far, the footage that they've been showing me is incredible. I think it's going to be a really great feature documentary when they're all done with it wow yeah it's amazing that's so cool so how do how can people follow along in your journey what's the easiest way to kind of because i already know like all of our friends are going to listen to this and be like how where where is this guy i want to see the documentary i want to see his journey i want to know what he's doing where can they find you thanks so much for that because it really it really matters it helps me so much because all my training i'm doing solo but knowing that there's people behind me really helps and so probably the easiest way is through instagram uh, so my name, Jay Hewitt, it's just at Jay Hewitt, no underscores, no, just very simple. J A Y H E W I T T. Um, and I'm posting progress every Wednesday. There's training progress. There's, uh, you know, I, I talk about how I'm not just aspiring to be an iron man. I want to be an iron dad. I want the <laughs> same strength, you know, after I come home from training to really invest in my, in my family, you know, and so there's, uh, updates on what's going on in my family and in my health. 
And so Instagram's the best way there. I also have a YouTube channel, um, youtube.com slash Jay Hewitt. Um, and there's a, a great, you can, you can get a chance to see uh, a little sample of what the, the film is going to look like. They, the studio um, edited down a little five-minute segment for uh, my church for Easter. And um, oh, cool. so it's, huh. it's a little more, like this isn't going to be a faith-based film that we're making. It's more right. of a, an athlete-based film. Um, but this short film that you can find on my YouTube, uh, talks more about my faith. Um, so those are the, the two best ways. I also have a website, jhewitt.org. Um, you can sign up on a, you know, email list for all the, the latest inside updates if you really care. But, um, Instagram is the best for sure. Cool. Great. Well, I mean, we can't thank you enough for coming on to our show. Um, we are so grateful that you were able to carve out some time. I know that you're busy training, you're busy with your family. So again, thank you so much. I hope that we can have you back. I mean, you know, I, I would love to know, I, I have a million other questions. I mean, it's, I'm sure you have, I oh. have a laundry list of questions, but we got to wrap it up for today, but hopefully we can invite you back and I hope you'd be willing to come hang with us again. Yeah, I love it. I would love to be a part. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for reaching out and uh, yeah, let's keep talking. Perfect. 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 Hosted on dimlywit.com.